It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in the Indian Ocean World, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This podcast is for listeners who want to sail the waters of the expansive Indian Ocean and learn about its past and present. Thank you for joining me today. I'm your host, Michael Ramore from the City University of New York. Today, I'm here to talk to Christopher Ian Foster, author of Conscripts of Migration, Neoliberal Globalization, Nationalism, and the Literature of New African Diasporas, published in 2019 by the University of uh, the University Press of Mississippi. Conscripts of Migration offers a transnational and transoceanic study of the migratude literatures of the new African diasporas in the context of contemporary crises and struggles over global South migration. We'll explore how colonial histories produce and continue to produce such migrations and how migratude writers represent and defy these pressures. Additionally, We'll learn how the concept of migratude intervenes in multiple theoretical conversations in diaspora studies, certainly including Indian Ocean studies, but with wide interdisciplinary implications. Speaking from Tampa, Florida, I want to welcome Christopher Ian Foster to new books in the Indian Ocean world. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk about your book. Thanks, Michael. I really appreciate it and honored to be here. Totally. So, um, Ian... Can you start us off by saying a few words about yourself, that is, you know, where you grew up, where you studied, how you became interested in your field, and any influential mentors and scholars along the way? Of course. Um, I'm originally from Washington State in the greater Pacific Northwest, and I did my undergraduate work at the University of Washington in Seattle, and I got a, a, a couple of bachelors, one in anthropology and one in English literature. Then I moved to New York City, the Graduate Center of the City University of New York, and uh, received a interdisciplinary master's degree in liberal studies, and then went on to, to, to complete a PhD in the English department there. Um, after that, I spent a few years as an assistant professor in, in a couple of different English departments, um, and now I'm in international studies at uh, Colorado State University, and I I, I wanted to mention the sort of interdisciplinary nature of my study because I think it's going to come up later uh, in, in my studies. I think it's going to come up later in the book. And um, just to mention a couple of, of uh, mentors that were really important to me, particularly in grad school. The first is uh, Robert Reed Farr, who was my dissertation director. Um, he's at Harvard now, but I, I want to mention him because he... he introduced me to Black Diaspora Studies, which is uh, so important, when was, was so important to my um, area of interest. And 
Um, he's at Harvard now. And then also uh, in post-colonial studies, I wanted to mention Mina Alexander at the Graduate Center. She was uh, um, a, a wonderful mentor for me there and a teacher and supported us, uh, the students who were involved in post-colonial studies and thinking about things like phenomenology. And so, so I think I just want to mention those two as, uh, as, as very important mentors, Robert Reed Farr and, and Mina Alexander. Yeah. And as you know, they were both particularly influential for me as well. I do. Yeah. So, um, Let's turn to the book then. How did the idea for conscripts of migration develop? Um, what was your re research process like? And how did you experience the actual writing process? Yes, it's a good question. So um, what I'd like to say is that the, the, you can think about it as a, a larger project that essentially has two lives. One, the first life was as a dissertation, as a, as a graduate student. So it started out... Um, uh, as a, a product of, of years worth of research in graduate school, and it became a dissertation, which is its own genre and has uh, scholarly aspects to it. And then it was uh, rewritten and revised as a, as a book. And um, what led me to sort of revising it and rewriting it was that although the dissertation as it existed was a solid work of scholarship um, and that sort of met the elements of, of, of that particular genre. It didn't really have an argument and it didn't really have a voice and it was um, perhaps, uh, perhaps a given that it was, um, in terms of a general audience, just a bit overly scholarly. And so I wanted to, to rewrite it in terms of, uh, of an argument that I, I kind of finally came upon after I defended the dissertation. And I wanted to attempt to make it a little bit more widely accessible uh, for a larger audience. And that is sort of, sort of tone down some of the, the, the scholarly um, characteristics of it. I don't think I went far enough on that. Um, so perhaps that'll be um, something that I think about for the next project. Well, even so, it seems like conscripts of migration is um, stunningly broad in its, in, at least in the implications of its arguments. So it brings together um, multiple oceanic frameworks, including Mediterranean, Indian Ocean, and transatlantic migrations, um, in addition to numerous diasporic routes from global north, to, I'm sorry, from global south to global north across multiple languages and literary traditions. So I wondered if. Um, Given this breadth, you could say more about the methodological and theoretical context by which you bring these together. Um, in other words, was there sort of an overarching methodological problem or dis dissatisfaction um, that the notion of migratory literature addresses? Yes, it's a great question, and I, I appreciate the characterization of, of the book as, as, as broad. Um, it is, there's, there's a, a number of, of methodologies and uh, theoretical concerns throughout, and I'll, I'll, I'll start with a sort of general answer, and then we can go from there. But I wanted to uh, just uh, come back to the, this idea of interdisciplinarity, and I mentioned that a little bit in my bio, um, but it's important for me, it was important for me as I was writing it to make sure that I'm drawing from 
different disciplines to approach the particular problem and subject matter at hand. So I'm sort of trying to pull from anthropology and sociology and economics, um, philosophy of, of course, literature, which was the department that I was in, um, and politics. And within those sort of interdisciplinary concerns, there's another, uh, uh, there's quite a few uh, sub, sub genres or, or um, fields, sub fields that I work with. I, I mentioned um, post-colonial global and diaspora studies as, as being very, very important, but I also pull from uh, Marxist methodologies, feminist methodologies, and I also mentioned phenomenology er earlier. So those are the, some of the, the tools that I, I drew off of to, um, to try to approach the, 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 the main concern of the book. And, but the, the main concern of the book was really migration. Uh, obviously, it's right in the title, but human movement, but really to try to explain and to understand why our 21st century, which is, is characterized as the, the age of migration, we've, we've seen more migrations and human movement than ever before in history. And so why is that migration uh, characterized in terms of, of crisis and emergency? Um, why is it uh, almost violent in nature? And so the question was really about immigration. And if we're not thinking about immigration in the way that we should, how should we and how can we look at history and literature to help us understand the issues that sort of subtend the problems that, that, that we have, have now? And so that's the kind of, I guess, very, very general theme that ties together all of those fields and disciplines and, and, and um, concerns that, that you also mentioned. And so it's about immigration, but it's also a, an argument that there is a body of, of literature or cultural production, what have you, that actually goes far to give us a way to think about those concerns. And you mentioned migratude literature, and that's what we're calling it or that's what I call it um, for short. I also use the term literature of new African diasporas. Uh, migratude has, has, is more broad than African diasporas. There are um, South Asian migratudes, Caribbean migratudes. Um, but the point is, is that this sort of body allows us, uh, at least in, for, the, for the book and the book's concern, allows us a sort of vehicle to, to think about this larger theme of, of immigration and how do we think about it and, and how, do we, how do we solve the problems that we have now that are associated with it? Yeah, so let's get into that um, history and literature by turning to the book and its chapters. So the book consists of six chapters. The first is titled Conscripts of Migration in the Era of Globalization. So what do you mean by describing migration in terms of conscription? Um, could you explain your use of this term and how it helps us approach the literature of the new African diaspora as you foreground in the book? Yes, um, it's a it's a great question, and it's sort of that that term is sort of the cornerstone of the argument. And I admit that it's sort of controversial in the sense that the the dictionary definition um, really has to do with uh, forced conscription into an army. It has to do with power and force. 
And migration is something that we commonly think of as someone that one can do or not do as free to do and free not to do. And so that there's sort of a counterintuitive nature. But before I get to that tension, I just want to, to, to sort of comment on a, a larger issue that, that I think the term wants to deal with. And the, the issue is that here in the United States and then the global North, we have a, a, a dominant sort of ideology, a dominant sort of understanding. And that's, that's a sort of neoliberal ideology that really um, places primacy upon the individual and particularly the individual in a, in a free market. And it has to do with property and all that stuff. I won't get into that, but it, what, what we really have is, is this, um, uh, again, primacy of the individual. And so when we think about immigration and migration, it's, sort of automatically within those contexts, whether it's on the right or the left, um, whether we have discussions about immigrants that are, are demonizing and stereotyping and racializing, or whether we have discussions about immigrants on the other side in terms of, of tolerance and um, perhaps more compassionate language than uh, on, the, on the right. What I wanted to get away from is that, that both of those actually rely on uh, an idea that almost takes the individual out of, out of context and that prioritizes it for all sorts of different reasons that I, I won't get into now. But what conscription really does is, is a term that sort of um, mitigates against that. And what, it, what, I'm, what I'm arguing is that there... In terms of migration, there are a set of historical conditions that shape decisions to move or not move. That actually, if you think of uh, forced migration or refugee crises um, or or any other um, any other condition like that, it's really not about the individual or individual choice. It it, it really is there there. There are individuals, but they are extant within a certain set of conditions that have been shaped by a, another certain set of historical conditions. And so on the one hand, conscription is, is, is a very, very general, almost metaphorical way of describing how one, particularly in the global South, exists in those conditions and therefore it is not free to move or not move, but is, is conscripted into a sort of, call it modernity or globalization, what have you, and that, that those conditions have their origin in imperialism historically. So there's a history there. And now we exist under a kind of neoliberal globalization or neocolonialism. And so the, there's, there's a kind of set of conditions or or contexts within which people move. And then the other side of conscription is that there's a much more material and immediate uh, set of, of real and concrete situations and, and barriers um, that also conscript or, or shape those who move. And I'm thinking here in terms of the materiality of borders, in terms of walls or fences or cages, in terms of the materiality of documentation and discourses around documentation, like passports, 
we have a whole passport hierarchy. We have visas and papers and, and whatnot. And so there are very real uh, material ways that folks are conscripted. And then finally, add that to the sort of ideological or, um, or discursive, which is there's, a, there's already a sort of uh, preconceived script where immigrants fit in. And so I'm thinking there in terms of things like stereotypes, um, racialized stereotypes of migrants. So for example, we have this whole sort of demonizing rhetoric in the United States about people from Mexico being criminals or rapists and whatnot, a, a total myth with no bearing on reality. But it's this extant set of racist stereotypes that target immigrants and that sort of discourse and rhetoric also has a colonial history, um, but it also sort of features a different kind of conscription. So for me, there's sort of conscription was a term that provided a, a hinge through which to look at immigration in, in multiple different ways that I thought were far better than um, what we have now, which is a kind of neoliberal individualist um, uh sort of a free movement or free not to move. If you moved for economic reasons, that's your fault or that's your country's fault. And, and all of the stuff that's sort of wrapped up in those sort of problematic yet dominant and, and sort of almost unconscious conceptions. So, so that's, that, that's really where I want to kind of start in terms of thinking about conscription. Yeah, it seems like your use of conscription and then also migratude is also turning against a certain like strand in post-colonial studies that identifies diaspora with a kind of elite cosmopolitanism. And that's something that you uh, definitely pick up on in the in chapter two titled Immigration and the Phenomenology of Movement from Negritude to Shalja Patel's Migratude. So this chapter traces the intellectual roots from Negritude era identity politics to the aesthetics of migratude found, for example, in Shalja Patel's eponymous work. Um, so here you also engage with the philosophical tradition of phenomenology as a way of approaching migratude literature. Um, could you outline what the phenomenological method offers to theorizing the diasporic routes represented in literary works like migratude? Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I love phenomenology, and I'd, I'd like I'd love to hear your your thoughts on it too. But I think for in order to sort of keep with the theme that that we have here, I, I think that um, phenomenology is is also a good tool to enter into questions about immigration that don't sort of rely on the uh, neoliberal or liberalist or even nationalist conceptions of the the individual and, and migration and all the sort of um, negative uh, aspects of those things. So, so phenomenology actually wants us to um, get beyond that by looking at being itself. So if, of course it starts with uh, Husserl and then um, goes various directions from Heidegger to Sartre um, to, um, and now we have great work um, by people like Sarah Ahmed on queer phenomenology. Um, Frantz Fanon, our, our hero in post-colonial studies, is actually doing phenomenology, uh, sort of racial phenomenology in um, black skin, white masks. So there's a, there's a whole history there and a, there's a lot of uh, wonderful work on it that folks are doing, including yourself. 
but uh, without getting too much into that, I think that um, for me that it was sort of in, in fitting with, uh, I guess, the ethics of the book where I really wanted to work against the flattening of subjects under what we could call neoliberal capital or neoliberal globalization that stereotype or, or, or flatten folks who move or individuals um, for various reasons, the reproduction of, of oppression, uh, to demonize, to keep people out, um, all sorts of reasons uh, to, um, to abdicate responsibility for the creation of those very migration crises in the global, global South. And so phenomenology actually does that by, by um, sort of bridging the gap between um, uh, well, I don't want to get too, too far into to, to metaphysics and um, all of that stuff, but really what we can say that it gets to um, what Heidegger would kind of uh, borrow from Husserl in, in, in when, he's, when he uses the term being in the world, which just means that um, uh, a person is in the world and is, is shaped by the world in very complex ways. And phenomenology being a tool that gets us to um, a, a tool and a sort of ontology that is a study of being that gets us to this uh, kind of being in the world. It, it uses what they call the natural attitude to cut through sort of preconceived um, ideas that are sort of presented as, as common sense, but are actually sort of mythical in a way, just like stereotypes and things like that. And so um, phenomenology is, is I, th I thought was a good tool to look at what was going on, immigration and the literature, but it was also something that I felt that these, these writers that I'm looking at were already doing. So in their novels and in their poems and in their plays, they were actually looking at migration and immigrants, not from a sort of individualist or a nationalist perspective, but from a, a way that really that really focused on the being in the world of the migrant, if you can, if, if we want to use that phrase, the being in the, and all of the objects um, that constellate that being from borders and, and cages and checkpoints to just ideas of being in the world, um, ideas of, of what home is, what is diaspora, communities, um, and things like that. So um, for me, that was that. That's kind of the main reason that that I thought I thought phenomenology would be a, a good a good thing to go back to and, and and look at in these terms. Yeah, totally. And I think for me, um, one of the things you also gain uh, from phenomenology is this sort of alternative um, engagement with humanism that's neither mm. liberal nor colonial humanism. And I think that's exactly yes. at least in part where you go in chapter three, right? Um, which is titled The Condition uh, d'Immigré in Fatou Diom's The Belly of the Atlantic and the Aesthetics of Migration in the Francophone African Literary Tradition. Too long so, of a title. Um, Sorry about that. No, you're good. Lots of, lots of information. Yeah. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So this chapter extends the discussion of negritude from the previous chapter, um, this time in a uh, francophone context. Mm -hmm. So here you're connecting the immigrant condition represented in Fatou Diom's The Belly of the Atlantic as an engagement with um, negritude aesthetics where the black humanism of negritude informs a migrant humanism. Um, so could you explain the development of and distinction between these humanisms in uh, Diem's work or perhaps more broadly? Yeah, this is a, a, another wonderful question. It's also another pretty, pretty big question. And the answer I'm going to give, and I, I've been giving sort of reductive answers that sort of reduce, for example, the, the history and breadth of things like phenomenology and whatnot. But I want to try to, 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 to answer the question in a, in a, in a way that engages uh, listeners and to, to sort of give a sense of, um, not, I wouldn't even say an introduction to the, the history of these things, but uh, maybe food for possible uh, further research. And so really, and I, I like your uh, uh, question about liberal humanism as a response to the last answer. Um, and I think it's, I think it's good to start there and, and feel free to jump in, but so liberal humanism is uh, something that started in Europe. It's something that um, starts burgeoning around in the Renaissance Enlightenment sort of era, and it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a philosophy, but it's more than that. It's it's sort of a, a politics or a, a way of being and, and doing. Um, and it was really a, a sort of a response against um, feudalism and and this just sort of the. Um, almost tyranny of, of religious divine right. And it wanted to focus instead on humans, obviously. And it, it gave us a lot of uh, good philosophical and political material that you can work with from, you know, Kant onwards and before and after that. But the thing about it was, is that it was Eurocentric and that almost maybe seems too obvious to mention, but that it was it was it was born in Europe, and although it claimed to deal with humanity and and sort of almost a universal perspective, as cosmopolitanism does, what it was is fairly exclusive. It didn't it didn't consider other people in other parts of the world, uh, in colonies, for example, in Africa or in um, South Asia, India, for example, as humans or as counting as human as as Europeans, and so it's sort of it's sort of a, a weirdly exclusive yet universalizing philosophy. Um, and what you have in the, the sort of late colonial period, um, when you have anti-colonial movements, you mentioned the Negritude era, up through anti-colonial and post-colonial sort of philosophies or um, politics or, or, or activism, you, you have a sort of questioning of that Eurocentric notion of humanity that would exclude, that would, that would, that would on the surface claim to be a universal, but then would, would simply exclude others. 
particularly black folks and non-white folks, um, people of color. And so what Negritude did, particularly Senghor, was to sort of prefer a, a, a sort of black humanism is what, what he called it. It was, it was sort of uh, parallel to Pan-Africanism. Uh, but it was not only a sort of anti-racist and anti-colonial uh, philosophy, but it was one that also uh, attempted to revitalize the revitalize uh, a, a, an entire continent and uh, an entire people that had been demonized through. Uh, centuries of colonization. So once it, it also wanted to get away from these ideas of, of heart of darkness and um, places in the colonies as, as being backwards and things like that. So it was also a celebration of of humans and Senghor wanted to be specifically all humans. So he thought that there could be this um, mixture of, of of European and, and African and um, South Asian, and it was almost sort of a, a multicultural philosophy there. He was also a phenomenologist um, in the sense that he used ontology and he, he, he liked um, this idea of, of being, being in the world. Um, there's been some criticism of, of Negritude, as you know, for being essentialist. And there were some regrettable phrases that he used that sort of almost kind of re re reified Africa and Europe. But if you really kind of do a deep dive into Negritude, you'll find that at the, at, the, at the very most, we have a sort of strategic essentialism and that there's more going on there than uh, essentialism. Um, but so that's in the colonial context. And then you have the, the period of, and I won't go into the history of it, but you have the post-colonial period and then you have a, a period of, of intense economic exploitation by the global north that is driven by the what's called the Washington Consensus, which gives us basically global capitalism and uh, neoliberal uh, globalization as a new form of, of, of colonization, although very different in ways that it racializes and um, normativizes in different ways, uh, very different ways of, of, of conquest and exploitation. And so what um, I think Migratude at large does, and Fatudium, or Fatudium, I'm sorry, does in Belly of the Atlantic is, is to really um, reveal those, uh, the, those sort of problematic processes that are still sort of driven by a sort of almost universalist, um, I, I don't know if you want to say humanism, but still, still sort of driven by ideas that uh, character so sort of characterize so-called Western Western democracies about liberty and freedom and individuals and everybody mattering. And it kind of cuts through that myth and shows that that, that discourse is, is and was just about as exclusive as Eurocentric no notions of, of humanism. And though it's different from colonial humanism, you could say that it, it's been kind of refracted and and um, changed and evolved in various ways. And so this idea of migrant humanism, so, so, so migrants, so there's a, a specific kind of colonial racialization that has changed and shifted uh, to, to now in the late 20th and 21st century, where you have a, a different, a, a almost more variegated and um, wide ranging racialization of, of immigrants. 
right? So it's, 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 it's still anti-black and anti-brown, but it's, it's, it's evolved in a certain sense. And so a migrant humanism is, is really wanting to respond to that and sort of um, cut through this idea of a, a universalist Eurocentric humanism um, as a way not only to sort of understand the uh, sort of contemporary problems we have, but as a way to simply humanize the very beings of beings who move, who are, are still human now, that's migrants or refugees, but still continue to be dehumanized by the very Western liberal so-called democracies that we have now. And so it's, it's, it's very important what Fatou Guillaume and Migratude, Rider, Migratude Riders do. It's, a very, it's, it's very simple, but it's very important is, is that sort of rehumanization of, of the migrant. And so that's, that's kind of all what I, what I mean by migrant humanism. But what, I, what I'm doing is I, I really see that it's, it's coming out of these texts themselves. And I think just my interpretation of it is going to fall short. And so I'd encourage others to kind of get in there and see really what's going on. But I think that's actually coming from the, from the literature and cultural production and, and philosophies that I'm looking at in the book. Yeah. And it seems like that shift to migratude also like links these discourses, but also uh, it links them beyond the transatlantic frame that negritude sort of foregrounds. Right. So for example, mm -hmm. East African sites, I think this is one of the sort of many um, overtures to um, Indian Ocean studies that um, the book makes. Um, and that leads to chapter four. Um, we carry our homes with us on the literature of the Somali Italian diasporas. So here you shift focus to Somali migrations to Italy since the 1980s. Um, could you say something about the historical factors that led to Somali uh, Italian migration and how they're engaged in Afro-Italian migrant narratives? Yes, I can. And that's a, it's a great question. And I, I wanted to pause, if I may, just for a second, you mentioned in Indian Ocean Worlds. And I, I, I wanted to take a moment and, and maybe um, try to make an argument that, that the material here is indeed um, relevant to Indian Ocean Worlds. And I want us to kind of, I want to, I'd like to go back to one of the forefathers of Pan-Africanism um, in E.W. Blyden. And he's actually from the Caribbean, but after uh, att 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 attempting to attend college in 1850 in the United States, but being denied based on his race, he spent the rest of his life in Liberia and would es essentially uh, inaugurate the field of Pan-Africanism. Um, but the interesting thing is that his, his field, that his conception of Pan-Africanism also included the Indian Ocean world. And so if I could pause for a second and maybe um, just paraphrase uh, a quote from him that he, that he has in his book that he wrote in 1886, it'll, it'll, it'll include the Indian Ocean world, which I think migratude literature, as, as you mentioned, also in, includes. And so he's writing in 1886 and states that there has been an unbroken line of communication between the west coast of Africa through the Sudan and the so-called Great Desert and Asia from the time when portions of the descendants of Ham and remote Asias began their migrations west, westward and first saw the Atlantic Ocean. Africa is no vast island separated by an immense ocean from other portions of the globe and cut off through the ages from the men who have been influenced 
who have made and influenced the destinies of mankind. Um, she has, uh, in just a couple more sentences, she's been closely connected both as a source and nourisher with some of the most potent influences which, which have affected for good the history of the world. The people of Asia and the people of Africa have been in constant intercourse. And so really what he's saying is that there is a, uh, there's been this constant movement, essentially, for, for Blyden from biblical times among people and ideas across the Indian Ocean world, from India to Africa to Sudan to the Mediterranean world and then to the Atlantic. And so it's, it's kind of interesting. I think there's a, an echo of that sort of pan, what, I don't know what you'd call it, trans or pan-oceanic that would connect the Atlantic, it would connect the Indian Ocean world to the Mediterranean and even the Caribbean as, as he's from there, that that is that is sort of sort of echoed in migratude literature, particularly if, if you look at folks like Shalja Patel and um, on the on the east coast of Africa. But so that's that. And uh, feel free to jump in with with your comments on that. But I just wanted to tie tie back into the Indian Ocean world. In terms, no, that's of, great. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I think it really underscores how um, Pan-Africanism was always, at least in part, an Afro-Asian discourse, even though sometimes that gets obscured. Yes, and there's been a, a flowering of great work recently in the past decade that's connecting these these world these worlds, yourself included, that I that I think is so important um, to sort of take us beyond and through and outside the Black Atlantic, which is is, is still super important to consider. Um, but folks like uh, Lisa Lowe's Intimacy of Four Continents, for example, is going to make sure that she connects the Indian Ocean to the Black Atlantic and, and the Caribbean and the New World. And folks working on Caribbean indenture are, are, are connecting that and um, uh, all sorts of good work on that. And I know that you're working on that. So that's great. Now, I've, I've, I've totally um, ignored your question about the uh, <laughs> historical context of Italy. So I just want to run through that really quick for our, our readers Cool. So that you get a sense of just the massive amounts of outside incursion into this one particular colony, Somalia, and how, of course, that's going to go and create um, crises that then will lead to immigration crises, migration crises, and refugee crises even. And so if you look at Somalia, for example, it's an Italian colony from 1888 to 1941. It's then a British colony from 1941 to 1960. From 69 to 91, you have the dictator uh, Said Bar. And during that period, you also have the Cold War, where you have neo-colonial powers, the United States and Russia, um, really... It, it really is a form of, was a form of, of neo-colonial. There was all sorts of puppeteering around the world to, to devastating effects. Um, for example, you had a, a war in 1977 between Ethiopia and Somalia. And on the surface, it was about Ogaden and whether Ethiopia had colonized that or not. But really what it was is a war, it was a proxy war between the U.S. and, um, the, and, and Russia at the time, the USSR, right? And there was massive amounts of funds for both dictators, massive amounts of armaments. And um, at one point, uh, U.S. and Russia would switch sides uh, to devastating effects. And it created this war that would, 
that would that would that would kill 2.5 million people. And so this is um, a, a significant amount of the responsibility lies with the, the the two superpowers there. And then after that, you have after the the Washington consensus, and you have the turn to neoliberal globalization, which I just call neocolonialism. From 81 to 89, you have the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank and everybody getting into to colonies. But in Somalia specifically, IMF forces Somali, Somalia to devalue currency uh, 460% to liberalize econ- its economy, to privatize uh, public services. And one of, uh, one of what's also a part of what's called structural adjustment programs, which were um, imposed on former colonies all throughout the global South or were austerity programs, which was just a nice way of saying you're going to cut public spending to pay us back. And at, on the eve of the civil war, it was transferring nearly 50% of its export earnings to debtors. So it's, it's paying back its, its former colonial masters for, for what the right to, to live, to, to, to be, um, it's, it's paying back the, the institutions of economic globalization. Um, and so that creates, uh, among other, uh, historical, um, moments and, and happenings and contexts, the civil war, which is, is devastating. It creates refugee crisis. It creates the failed state. Um, and, the, the state basically collapses. And so you have, again, just waves of, of refugee crises, migration, people having to move. And, and so, you know, to think about it in a sort of neoliberal way where the, an, an individual has the, the choice or, or um, has a, a freedom of movement, it, it seems really ridiculous in this con- context. And it seems better to look at it through conscription in the sense you have this kind of very real material historical conscription, and then you have um, factors in the present day. And so on top of that, Somalia is then sort of demonized or mythologized as this failed state where um, it's just bad Somali uh, actors, um, Somali people uh, failed. And um, so we're going to blame that on them. And um because it's a failed state, it becomes a site of, of terrorism. And so you have this shifting of blame away from the global North, away from the United States, away from any of the former colonial masters onto individual Somali folks and the Somali failed Somali state. And so there's, and this is just one colony that we're talking about, but if you look at the, these histories, it just shows um, how how material these conditions are and how relevant they are in in terms of understanding immigration and migration crises, including uh, refugee crises, which is, is a different uh, category, but um, related. And so if you read some of these novels that, that I look at here, um, the Christina Ali Farah novel, for example, or the Nadifa Muhammad, you do get a sense of that historical context as a way to sort of look at what we need to think about in terms of human movement now, immigration crises now, what's going on. It is related to the United States. It is related to powers in the global north and sort of the world is sort of connected in this asymmetrical 
whole and there's a historical precedent for it. And I think the, the literature that I'm looking at or uh, cult- cultural production in general really speaks to that. Yeah, and another important topic that is definitely engaged throughout, but then it's taken up more specifically in uh, Chapter 5, concerns the gendered nature of conscripted migration. So Chapter 5 is titled, A Matter of Timing, Queer Diasporas and Heteronationalism in Durie Osman's Fairy Tales for Lost Children. So this chapter turns to the intersection of migration and sexuality. Um, why is attending to this intersection so important, and how does Osman's fairies for, fairy tales for lost children intervene? Yeah, it's a great question. You can sort of see how um, almost wildly different the the methodologies and theories and subject matter is in in the book. I think it's all connected, but you know, it 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 might seem sort of counterintuitive to say that to kind of argue that sexuality and and immigration are related or even connected. What does one have to do with the other, for example? But if you look at a couple of the recent, really important critical lenses and and fields, which I I think are important now in terms of um, both queer theory and critical race theory, which I hear is, is, is being banned now. <laughs> so we'll, we'll hope that that doesn't, uh, that doesn't happen. Um, right. What that tells us is that race and sex and sexuality are normative. And what does that mean? It means the way that society not only thinks about or conceptualizes race or sexuality or migration is both a sort of construct that exists uh, as a as a discourse and that's that is based on a normative one which presupposes that there's a there's an other there's an abnormal there's something that's not not normative there's something that's not normal and that needs to be excluded or policed and this idea that these uh, normative categories such as race or sexuality or whether one is, 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 is a migrant or a refugee or, or a native or a citizen, those are actually policed in, in, um, in real life or in, in uh, material reality, just in the sense that there are material practices based around policing those things. There are laws based around that. For example, there was a law in 1952 that actually outlawed anyone who was gay or lesbian from immigrating to the United States. And you'll also know that, of course, we've, we have laws that uh, outlaw certain kinds of immigrants and, and all of that stuff. So, so it's both migration, sexuality, race, they are, they are managed, monitored, and policed. And so when you think about that sort of larger systemic uh, structure or or question, then you can begin to connect sexuality and migration, because they're they're both normative and they're both managed in certain ways to very real effects. And the the wonderful thing about um, Daria Osman's collection of short short stories, fair, fairy tales for for lost children, it's just an awesome collection. And he's a awesome queer artist. And he's also a a philosopher. If you read his interviews, he just gives wonderful interviews, but he's a queer Somali Kenyan, um, British, um, man living in, in London now. And, 
So he is intersecting all of these different normativities from uh, sort of uh, almost sort of sort of patriarchal and, and homophobic religious aspects in um, Somalia or Kenya to heteronormativity in, in London um, to racialization in London to colonial histories and uh, migrants and various diasporas. And so it's this, this really incisive intersection of, of all of these issues that have to do with identity and um, uh, the managing of movement and the managing of sexuality and the policing of this, these various things. And I think it's just a wonderful work that is, is wide ranging. And it, it's, 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 it's a lot more than what I've described as well. Those are just the kind of issues that I I'm focusing on because I think it gets to, to the point of the book, which is to, to think about how we can better understand immigration, but it's just a wonderful book that, that, um, that actually talks to, to, to all those issues and then kind of shows us that indeed this idea of sexuality as intersecting with migration isn't as counterintuitive of, as we might have thought. Cool. And then last but not least, um, chapter six on the imperial origins of immigration in Nadifa Mohammed's Black Mamba Boy and Claude McKay's Banjo, I think brings together a, a lot of these strands. Um, so how do Muhammad's Black Mamba Boy, a novel of migration across the Horn of Africa, and Banjo, McKay's noted Pan-African novel set in 1930s Paris, connect in your readings? Yes, and these are this is a, another wonderful set of novels. I just love all of these novels. So <laughs> for our readers, go out and go out and, and read all those. I know you have, uh, Michael, but um, if you haven't, check them out. So Claude totally. McKay's novel, Banjo, came out in 1929, and... and uh, Claude McKay is actually um, uh, Jamaican, He's, uh, and but lived in the United States for a long time, and then um, kind of globe trotted around. Lived in Paris and also in Africa, and he went to to Russia. But um, Banjo was written in 1929, and it's this wonderfully Pan African novel, and it does have echoes of the kind of Pan Africanism that um, Blyden showed us earlier in this connection of Indian Ocean worlds. Um, Europe, Africa, Atlantic worlds, and the read, you'll just have to, to read it to kind of get a sense of that, that wonder, wonderful sort of trans-oceanic, trans, um, transnational, and, and basically and just diasporic sense of it. And he calls it a vagabondage, so you get a sense of this, this non-elite kind of almost what, what I will come to call migratude later, sort of non-elite um, sort of migration that, that most of the world's travelers are, are faced with. But McKay's novel is wonderfully Pan-Africanist and, and connects to all these issues and is, is certainly interesting to Indian Ocean worlds in the sense that there's a, there's a, a South Asian um, character who is in um, Marseille in France and a, a part of the, the, what he calls the Black Beach Boys. And so there's, there's, um, there's really a lot that, that you, you can do there with um, uh, Indian Ocean worlds and its connection to Pan-Africanism and all this other stuff. But what's, what's really interesting is that um, Black Mamba Boy, which was published by Nadifa Muhammad, and she's a Somali British writer. It's published in 2010. So it's, it's, it's quite a bit later than the McKay novel, but not only does she actually sort of almost uh, meta fictively, I guess, if we can still even use that term, but she actually at the end of her novel uh, integrates some of McKay's characters 
into her novel, um, which is about a, a little Somali boy during the colonial context and uh, towards the end of it in World War II, who's he starts out in Yemen and then he's um, sort of um, migrating and, and traveling and he, he peregrinates all over um, East Africa, the Horn of Africa, North Africa, and it takes us to, to London and we, we have a stop in Palestine even. Um, and she also, like other migratude texts, really wants to make sure that we understand that the way that immigration is structured today does have imperial histories. And so she's, she's very clear on showing us as um, Jama, who is the, the pro protagonist's name, um, travels around uh, different places in, 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 in Africa, in the Middle East, etc. Mostly it's in, it's in Africa, but there's all of these sort of um, imposed um, colonial, what you could almost call immigration regimes. So she, she's talking about borders and checkpoints and, and cages in terms of, of jailing people who um, uh, cross different different um, colonies and colonial powers. So it's almost this this European structure was sort of dropped onto Africa to, to, to very violent effects. So that those those two novels really kind of uh, speak to. I mean, you could all you could almost you, you could almost go back to to the the migrant humanism that I was I was talking about earlier and 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 suggest that. There's a sort of migrant humanism that exists in in McKay's banjo, and that would appear again in um, uh, Giome's novel, and appear yet again in Black Mamba Boy. Uh, but just as a sort of um, way of being in the world, or a, a, or, an, or an ethics that um, not only exposes the the sort of the, the sort of racialized terror of of immigration regimes, but would would um, recuperate or or highlight migrants, vagabonds, refugees, and diasporic populations. And those also have a, a, a colonial history, as, as Edward Said points out in um, Culture and Imperialism. But it, those, those are just, I'll, I'll just close by saying those are, those are two wonderful books that I think are, speak to the, exactly the themes that we're, we're talking about today. Totally. So thanks for walking us through the book. Um, before we move to our closing question, um, could you just take some time to read a favorite passage from the book? Yeah, sure. So I'm going to read the entire book because all of all of the <laughs> passages are great. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's, it's a great question. And I, I wanted to pause on, a, it, actually, in the introduction, there's a, a, a quote um, by Quinn Slobodian, who is uh, a great critic of neoliberal capitalism and neoliberalism. And what he's talking about is um, the, the, in, in the 70s and 80s, the, the imposition of, of what we would call now neoliberal globalization, neoliberal capitalism, and just how devastating it was. And we've, we've run through um, some issues in the podcast, so I won't go back over that. But the, the quote is, um, in response to the, uh, the, the sort of neoliberal or, or the global north sort of squashing of what was the um, new international economic order in the 70s, which would have been something like a, a trade union of the global south, sort of like a, a post-colonial um, uh, union. So that was um, immediately squashed by the powers that be from the IMF to the global, uh, to the, the world 
World Bank and the WTO, um, with the the Washington consensus and the vocal shock and all of that stuff, which I won't get too much into. But so he notes this, and it's it's very telling. And the reason why I wanted to read this because it's sort of telling about our um, our, our contemporary uh, situation here in 2020, 2021, uh, and and beyond. And he says that, and this is a quote. Given the patent refusal of the global North to live up to its own liberal principles by practicing actual free trade in key sectors such as agriculture, further deviations from the liberal principles themselves were necessary to account for path-dependent inequality. And so I go on to explain that quote. And so what what I say is, in a sense, post-colonial immigration is a symptom of the liberal Northern countries fascist policies in the South, and therefore migrants cannot be welcomed as such for the truth of their policies, these fascist policies imposed upon the South, inscribed upon the bodies and memories of the dislocated, would undermine the very narratives upon which the nations of the civilized world were built, quote unquote. And so with that, what I meant there is is, is not really a controversial point. It's, it's that... Uh, Imperial nations in in what has been called the Western world, living under quote unquote liberal democracies, have imposed fascist policies on their colonies. Now, you only need to ha- take a brief look at history to find out how that's true. For example, look at Britain's concentration camp in in, in Kenya in the 1950s, or the 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 constant practice of the U.S. to overthrow democratically elected leaders in Latin America and elsewhere. So there's all there's there there are fascist policies being imposed and and utilized abroad where um, principles of liberal democracy, um, freedom and things like that are um, championed at home. The the reason why I wanted to bring up this this quote or this little passage was because and I, I wasn't thinking this when I wrote it at all. I was, it was just a critique of imperialism abroad or, or neo-colonialism a, a, abroad. But it gets to the question of fascism coming home to roost. And so what we have right now is uh, a sort of burgeoning uh, move towards a right-wing dictatorship in the United States and in various other places um, pop, uh, populism has taken ho- hold, uh, bigoted nationalism and all of this stuff. And so the, I, I think a lot of folks that might not have been aware of it, say five years ago, are waking up and kind of startled to kind of sense some fascistic policies at home here in the global North in the U S and to wonder, well, what's happening and and how did we get there? And, and how the heck do we do we solve these problems? And I think one thing that you can do is is look to the the historical fact that the United States and other countries have actually used those very policies and practices and discourses on their on other places in the global South, whether it's their actual colonies or post colonies, and look at the history of that and how the how the colonized have dealt with that, how the post colonized have, have dealt with that. Because certainly they were not allowed to vote out the colonized; they had to, to to resist in other ways. And so, what it does, I think, I think the book is is sort of, even though it's it's not really about fascism in America at, at all, I think it's relevant in the sense that 
we can look to places in the global south that have experienced that. And of course, some of those experiences lead to the creation of, of migration and refugee crisis. So it's also relevant to, to immigration. Um, but it's, 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 it's interesting to, to those who might want to go and ask about what's happening in the, in the global north now and how we can look to the global south um, and to histories of the global south um, in places that span, for example, the Indian Ocean world, the uh, Black Atlantic world, Mediterranean, um, crises in the Mediterranean and whatnot. So that's why I wanted to read that passage and it really more of, uh, more of a discussion, sort of almost question to, to end with than in any real answers from me on that. Yeah, totally. And that just underscores the breadth uh, of the book and the works under study. Thank you. Uh, yeah. So, uh, Ian, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, so in closing, let me just ask, uh, what are you working on now? And can you tell us about your current and future projects or what you hope to work on? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, I'd love to. I'll, I'll try to be brief. But um, so I've got an article coming out that is is sort of related, but it's about sort of neoliberal neocolonization and it uses um, refugee crises in Haiti and Palestine as a way to look at that. Um, that's coming out in Journal of Narrative Theory in a couple months. And I really like it because I actually start out with this uh, Dead Kennedy song as a punk rock band from the 1980s, Dead Kennedy song. Um, they have a they have a song called um, The Great Wall, which is actually really relevant. And I start out with that, but it's, it's a great, it's, it, 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 Jella Biafra actually talks about global apartheid there. So I kind of do a riff on that. My, the next, I've got a couple of articles like that, but the, the next project is going to be um, uh, sort of similar to the issues that I, that I just brought up that that passage to looks at that, that, that passage looks at, and it's really a move towards looking at the global effects of American empire from 1900 to now. And, um, not only how that creates all sorts of different things in, 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 including, um, migration and refugee crisis and how it can explain what's what's happening now in the United States. But it really looks at um, responses from the global South, Latin America, Caribbean, Africa, South Asia, um, and other places that have been in various ways affected by American imperialism that still, that still is happening now, um, as, as, as we know. And so it, the, the, the book kind of shifts a little bit more towards American imperialism. And um, yeah, I, th I think it shifts a little bit away from, from from literature it, it'll still include that but it'll just kind of be it'll, it'll just look at sort of various responses various i should say global responses to american empire and then of course what those responses tell us about how we can solve uh what you would call problems at what you would call home if you're here in the united states um and those problems are are, are of course not only felt by people here and have actually always been felt by certain populations here, including black populations uh, who uh, Stokely Carmichael rightly said 50 years ago are sort of like colonized populations in the, in the United States, um, but uh, affects elsewhere. Certainly we, we saw that the 2008 financial crisis was, was global and not just um, unique to, to Washington. So hoping that that'll tell us looking to have a sort of global approach will, will, will help us um, solve some of these problems, but that's, that's a very, very sort of 
early idea. It's, it's, it's unformed and it's still sort of forming. Um, but that's sort of the direction I'm interested in going. Yeah, those sound great. Uh, thanks, Ian. And thank you for listening to today's episode in which we explored conscripts of migration, neoliberal globalization, nationalisms, and the literature of new African diasporas published in 2019 by the University Press of Mississippi. This is your host, Michael Ramore. Stay tuned for the next episode of New Books in the Indian Ocean World. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.